Right. We are we are ready to roll here this morning. It is April 25th, 2020, and we are studying the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we are in Bill's story. And since we were all virtually in in Ireland last week, we were there by uh, by Zoom. Uh, I'm going to remind everybody today, or I'm going to tell everybody today, that next week we will not be meeting in this forum. Next week we are going, by the magic of Zoom, we are going to be going to Edmonton, Canada. I do not have the details on codes, passwords, anything like that, but we're going to be doing from, I believe, 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. my time, that's going to be, I believe, let me make sure I have the time correct. No, yeah, this is April. I'm going to look at May because it's May 2nd. It's going to be 8 a.m. Pacific time. We're going to be going to Edmonton, Canada. And my friend Jen A. is going to post the numbers, the codes, and everything. Me, Larry K., and Jen are going to be doing a retreat for the folks up in Edmonton, Canada, and we are extending to every one of you guys a heartfelt invitation to join us. Uh, I believe that there is a minimal cost involved, but as that is above my pay grade, I couldn't tell you. The cost isn't going to be anything to, you know, anything that is going to break the bank. So I'm going to hopefully remember to say that at the end of this session. But for the purpose of this session, we are in Bill's story. And when we pick up after our review, we're going to be on page 7, the paragraph, but it was not. But before we do, let's take a little bit of a review as to what we have been talking about over the course of the last couple of weeks, with the exception, obviously, of last week. Bill Wilson is an alcoholic. He was born in East Dorset, Vermont, and he and his sister Dorothy were raised by their maternal grandparents after alcoholism broke up the marriage between Bill's mom and Bill's dad. Bill's mom is, um, is, uh, is, leaving, is, is kicking Bill's dad out because of his alcoholism. She just couldn't take it anymore, and she showed him the door. She just could not take it anymore. Bill's paternal grandfather, Grandpa Wilson, was also an alcoholic, and although he became a dry drunk and his marriage did not end in divorce, Bill saw that Grandpa's alcoholism was more than just a passing problem, and he has been warned by his family. He has been warned by his um his mother, he's been warned by his grandma, he's been warned by everybody he could possibly be warned by not to drink. And he goes into World War I, and while there he was assigned to Plattsburgh, and he discovers liquor. And in the midst of the excitement, he discovers liquor. And what does he find? He finds that liquor can do something for him that nothing else seems to do. And that is, it gives him an instant sense of ease and comfort that comes about as the result of drinking the liquor. In other words, liquor was not a problem for Bill Wilson. Liquor was the solution 
to the problem. And as a solution to the problem, Bill found that he could turn to liquor, he could drink liquor, and he could feel better instantly. It says on page one, it says, I forgot the strong warnings and prejudice of my people concerning drink. And that was what we were just talking about. Then in that same paragraph, at the last sentence, it says, I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. It does not say I was very thirsty and turned to alcohol. It does not say... I just really like the taste of liquor and I drank some. It doesn't say that. What it says very simply is I was very lonely and turned to alcohol. And you will hear me say this a lot. And the reason I say this is a lot is because I feel this is very important. The reason we study Bill's story is to identify with Bill Wilson. We want to identify And that's why it's not about gathering information, although that's some of it. What we're really talking about here is can I, excuse me, can I relate to the way Bill thinks? Can I relate to the way Bill drinks? And can I translate that to the way I used food? And for me, I can. And what we see in Bill Wilson is that liquor starts to rear its ugly head. His alcoholism starts to rear his, its ugly head. He is turning in a failing grade on his law exam. He does finally become, uh, he does finally pass the bar, but he never practices. But it says here, I nearly failed. He doesn't say he failed. But uh, food started to dictate every single thing about my life. My entire life was dictated to by my illness. And I could not dream the dreams. I could not share the aspirations of others because I knew in the back of my mind that I could not be trusted not to drink. I could not be trusted around food. And I knew I couldn't live in the food. And I knew I couldn't live without the food. And as I started to say before, for Bill Wilson, liquor was not so much the problem, but it was the solution to the problem. And for me, that's very true. See, food was never the problem. If food was the problem, losing weight would would cure me. If food was the problem, going on a diet, it would cure me. And not that I have a cure here in Overeaters Anonymous, but I have a one day, one day at a time reprieve. You see, we think that food is the problem and weight is the problem. It's the solution to the problem. So if food is the solution to the problem, what is the problem? The problem is the buildup of everyday normal human emotion. And as fear or happiness, or anger, or regret, or remorse, or that feeling of selfishness where the world and the people in it are just not sticking to my script, that frustration is going to build and build and get a little higher and a little higher and a little more intense, and my brain is going to send out a signal. Now, I'm not aware that the signal is being sent out. But what the brain is going to send out a signal for me to do is to eat food, not just any food, not broccoli, not cauliflower, unless these things are fried and, or 
you know, dipped in cheese or what have you. It's going to send out a signal for me to eat French fries. It's going to send out a signal for me to eat potato chips. It's going to send out a signal for me to eat whatever it is, cheeseburgers, whatever that might be. Because my brain knows that the relief that I'm going to get from eating that food, which is called the effect, Dr. Silkworth says this is the effect. The effect is that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating the food. And I eat the food. And for about nine seconds, I do feel fantastic. You couldn't feel better. Oreo cookies will do something for me, not to me, for me, that nothing else does except a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. And what does it do? It gives me an instant sense of ease and comfort, and it changes my, my perception of reality. Oreo cookies will change my perception of reality. And what we're going to see in Bill Wilson is that liquor is going to change his perspe- his perception of reality. And Dr. Silkworth calls this the effect. And he tells us in the doctor's opinion that this effect is so elusive that we will pursue it to the gates of insanity or death. And Bill... When the stock market crashes on Black Tuesday, these people, not, the, not all of them, but some of them are killing themselves. <sighs> Excuse me. Some of them are jumping off the building because they cannot envision a life without the wealth in the stock market that they have built up over the years, and now it was pretty worthless. It was absolutely worthless. And he goes back to the bar. Why? He knew without knowing intellectually that he could find relief at the bar in exactly the same way I could find relief in food in the refrigerator. So if food is the solution to the problem, that would be great if I didn't have the physical allergy. See, if I didn't have the physical allergy, what I would do is I would carry around uh, a bottle in my pocket or a jar or something. I would carry it around and I would fill it with M&Ms. And every time I got angry or every time I got scared or every time I felt a little bit of social anxiety, I would pop an M&M in my mouth and I'd be fine. But see, that effect or the mental twist that drives me to seek the effect, that's more more accurate. That mental twist that drives me to seek that effect in food is only half my problem. The other half is in the body. And what we see in Bill Wilson and what we see described in the doctor's opinion is this physical allergy. And what that allergy is, is an allergy is an adverse abnormal reaction to a food, beverage, or substance. And people would say to me for a long time, don't eat candy, you're allergic to it. And I'd say, you must be crazy. I'm eating 50, 60 candy bars a week or a day. I'm not breaking out in a rash. I don't have hives. I don't have itchy, watery eyes. And they said, never mind, just don't eat it. 
And I looked up this word allergy in a very archaic form of information. I looked it up in something called the dictionary. And if you're too young, you don't know what a dictionary is, you can Google dictionary. And in this dictionary, I found several definitions for this word allergy, and one of them fit me exactly. It said, an adverse abnormal reaction to a food, beverage, or substance. Now, my reaction to chocolate, my reaction to fried foods, my reaction to bread, my reaction to certain foods, cheeses, different things like that, artificial sweeteners, sugar, for me, I'm talking about for me. I'm not, not all of us are the same. You may, there's many people listening to my voice now and many people that are going to listen to my voice on this recording that can eat some of these things safely. As we are different from normal eaters, we are also often different from ourselves, from each other, I mean, from, e from each other. So I can't eat those things, but maybe you can, but that's okay. And any, any description of the alcoholic, which leaves out this physical factor, is incomplete. So we see Bill reacting to the liquor that once he starts drinking, he cannot stop. He cannot stop. And where do we see this best illustrated? We see this best illustrated on page six. He says, one day I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time, I was beating on the bar, asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time, but I might as well get good and drunk then. And I did. What caused Bill to take the first drink? The mental twist. What caused Bill to beat on the bar and say, where's my other beer? Where's my other drink? The physical allergy. So can I relate to the way Bill thinks? Yes. Can I relate to the way Bill drinks? Yes. So I can identify in with Bill Wilson. Now, Bill also illustrates beautifully in his story the progression of his illness. And if you remember back, except for last week, the last few weeks, we have talked at length about the progression of Bill's disease. And I have pointed out in every situation, Bill is drinking more and more and more and more as time goes on. And there are three characteristics of this disease that are taught to us by Peabody in the common sense of drinking, which became our chapter three, more about alcoholism. And what did Peabody teach us? He teaches us that the disease is permanent. It's permanent. A man of 30 was doing some spree drinking in chapter three. What happened eventually? He died. He was dead within four years. The disease is progressive. It gets worse over time, never better. And we see the progression in Bill's disease. Can I relate to it? You bet. And what is the third part about the disease? It's per permanent, progressive, and it is fatal. If you are a compulsive overeater like me, and you have this physical allergy, and Bill had the allergy, and you have this twist of the mind, and Bill had that twist of mind, and so do I, and I have the allergy, then we are biologically pre-programmed to destroy ourselves with food. Bill was pre-programmed to destroy himself with liquor. 
I am pre-programmed by biology to destroy my life with food unless I am acted upon by an outside force. So if I can't eat because of the allergy and I can't keep from eating because of the twist of the mind, I'm powerless over food and my life's unmanageable. Step one. So what's a fella to do? If I can't eat because of the allergy or the twist of the mind, can't keep from eating, then I have to have a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. And if I have a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps, and if you were with us last week in Ireland through the magic of Zoom, or you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you know that this is the only way for us to recover. And what the spiritual awakening will do for me is to do for me what the food did for me with none of the devastating side effects. So what we're doing is we are substituting the effect of the food, the effect of the Reese's peanut butter cups, for the effect of the, of the spiritual awakening. That's what we're doing. Now, Bill doesn't know any of that yet. Now, Bill is drinking more and more and more and more, and he's dying. He's 40 pounds underweight. He is, his, his liver is distended. He can't eat food. He's got alcoholic gastritis. So his brother-in-law, Dr. Leonard Strong, who married Dorothy Wilson, he is Bill's last hope because he, he liked Bill through everything when, when no one else did. And Bill's mother are going to put him in a hospital. Just any hospital? No. Is it odd or is it God? And on the page seven that we're studying today, we are beginning to see the hand of God in all things related to alcoholism. What we are seeing is an introduction between Bill Wilson and Dr. William Duncan Silkworth. And William Duncan Silkworth is observing these drunks, these people having problems with liquor. Some of them are alcoholic and some of them are not. But in 10% of the people that he sees coming through, he sees that they have this penchant, this allergy to drink more and more and more and more once they've started. And they can't leave it alone no matter how great the necessity or the wish. So with that in mind, Bill has been hospitalized in April of 1933. He has now been released from the hospital. It is now March of 1933, and he's about to go back into the hospital. Let's pick it up on page 7, but it was not. I'll give you a second to get there. Page seven, but it was not. And remember that this is now, we are now entering into Bill's second hospitalization of three for his alcoholism. But it was not, for the frightful day came when I drank once more. So Bill has been dry now for almost a year. And the emotions are building up within him. The fear is building up within him. The frustration of the depression is building up within him. I hear this from people today. Maybe we're not suffering the same kind of depression, but I'm hearing from people every single day that are having trouble with the economic uncertainty of the times. I'm hearing from people every day that they're struggling with the 
isolation that the settle-in-place orders have given them. I'm hearing from people every single day that are going stir-crazy. And so we see the similarities in Bill's life and in our life, right? The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. In other words, he was doing relatively okay when he was dry drunk. Now that he's drinking again, he is now not eating again. He is now unable to function. Now, there's a vast difference between a dry drunk and someone who is sober. Someone who's a dry drunk is just hunkered down and not drinking, but they're not having a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. Someone who is sober, who is having a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps, is a pleasure to be around. I don't, you know, you hear all the time, this one's got 30 years of sobriety or, or abstinence, and this one's got a million years of sobriety or abstinence. I'll take someone with six months. I'll take someone with three weeks. If they're really sober and they're working a program, they are a joy to be around. But someone who's dieting with group support, who's hunkered down, hanging from the chandeliers, stark, raving abstinent, that's a hard person to be around. He's dry drunk, but he's not sober yet. Let's see where we go from there. He says, I returned to the hospital. This is going to be April of 1934, one year after his first hospitalization. Bill is back in the town's hospital. This was to finish the curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife was informed that it would all end with heart failure during delirium tremens, or I would develop a wet brain perhaps within a year. Let's take a look at that. You see, Dr. Silkworth does not know yet that there is a solution for alcoholism. What does Dr. Silkworth know and what does Dr. Silkworth not know? Dr. Silkworth, with no scientific backing, no laboratory backing, is observing, and all this is is an observation that about 10% of the patients that come into the town's hospital, which at that time was the leading hospital in the country for the treatment of drug addiction and alcoholism, he sees that about 10% of the patients that come in are different from the 90%. They cannot stop once they start, and they cannot stay stopped. See, a lot of these people, about 9 out of 10, they got into some serious trouble from drinking. Some of you took drugs in college. Some of you drank in college. Some of you drank heavier than others in college. But you were able, if you're not alcoholic, you were able to stop. You were able to close the door on that part of your life and never return to it. Bill Wilson's type of, of, of person, of drinker, not of alcoholic, of drinker, Bill Wilson's type of drinker and Harlan's type of eater means I am unable, I am unable to stop even though I have serious intellectual reasons for doing so. Like, I'd like to get a wife. I'd like to be married. I don't want to live alone. I don't want to die alone. I'd like to look good. I'd like to feel good. I want to be healthy. I don't want to be morbidly obese. I want to be healthy. 
I do not want to walk around as a big fat person that's just not comfortable for me. But despite all that, if I don't work the steps, I will become that morbidly obese monster once again because my brain will justify in my brain that it's okay to eat the candy just this time. And Dr. Silkworth, through sheer observation, is saying these people are different. And now that he's seen Bill for the second time, he's able to piece together through gut instinct that Bill is one of these people that is an alcoholic. Now, I just told you there were things that Bill knew and things Bill did not know. What did he not know? Uh, Not Bill. I'm sorry. Dr. Silkworth. I'm sorry. Dr. Silkworth. There are things Dr. Silkworth knew and there are things Dr. Silkworth did not know. What did he not know? He did not know that there was a solution to this, to this uh, situation. So he's telling Lois upon looking at Bill, Bill is progressively worse than the last time he was in the hospital. Bill is in worse trouble with his drinking. So Silkworth is correctly assessing that Bill is one of these alcoholics, and he's having a conversation with Lois that Bill is going to end up with heart failure during DTs, that shaking that they do, or he's going to develop a wet brain. What's a wet brain? See, a wet brain is really a dry brain. They call it wet brain because it comes from drinking, so they call it wet brain. That's a misnomenclature. What is a wet brain? The brain and the liver, like all cells in the body, become dehydrated when we drink liquor to excess. When I put liquor in my body, What's happening is is that many of the cells in my body are getting dehydrated. That's why I'm not an alcoholic, and I'm not even a drinker. I'm I'm a teetotaler. I've been a teetotaler my whole life. I don't like the taste of liquor, and I sure as hell don't like the smell of it. And I sure as hell, if I'm going to consume calories, I'm going to consume food. Call me crazy. I'd I'd much rather get high and drunk from McDonald's French fries than I want to get high or drunk from drugs or liquor. I've never really tried drugs, but I'd rather get high on McDonald's french fries. But what's happening there is that's why these guys wake up and it's like they swallowed the Sahara Desert. And the first thing they need to do is drink something. Sometimes it's liquor, sometimes it's not. But they're very thirsty because they're dehydrated. Well, the brain and the liver do not rehydrate themselves. They don't have the cells in the brain and the and the liver do not have the ability to rehydrate themselves. And so what happens over time when you suck enough of the of the moisture out of the cells of the brain, it can no longer function. And when it cannot function anymore, a wet brain is like a vegetable. Really and truly, it's like being a zucchini. They get you up in the morning. They change your diaper from the night before. They plop you in front of the television set, and they feed you breakfast. They come and change your diaper. They come in, and they feed you lunch, and they change your diaper, and eventually they'll feed you dinner, and eventually they'll put you in bed, and that's your day every day for the rest of your life. You see, at least Alzheimer's has the decency to kill you. 
At least Alzheimer's has the decency to put you out of your misery. But wet brains can live like that for decades. They don't know anybody. They don't know anything. They haven't got the slightest idea if they're foot or horseback. And for the families, it is an absolutely nightmarish way to live. It is a nightmarish way because they go and visit you. You don't know them and they don't know you. And it is a nightmare. And this is what Lois Wilson is being presented, that he's either going to die or he's going to become a wet brain. I don't know what's worse. I probably would prefer death over being a wet brain, but these are the prospects that she's going through. Now, let's continue. She would soon have to give me over to the undertaker or the asylum. And what they would do with a lot of these guys is they would put them in an asylum. And the asylum is not a very nice place. You see, you may have a picture in your brain of a treatment center, which by today's standards is very humane compared to the asylums of my childhood. In Chicago, we had Dunning. We had Irving Park and Narragansett. They would have uh, these guys in there, and they would just kind of house them in there. And it was just a nightmare, just an absolute nightmare. So this is what Lois is going through. So let's set the let's set the scene. It's now 1934. It is now May of 34. Bill is being released from his second hospitalization. He is sober, but he's dry. he's not sober. He's dry. And he now knows Something is wrong. You see, Silkworth and Lois are not sharing this information with him. They feel that it's best that they don't, but he's going to kind of discover it on his own. They did not need to tell me. I knew and almost welcomed the idea. Page 7, very, very bottom. Now he dis- he, he's going to discover in his house some pamphlets for asylums that Lois is considering putting Bill in. It was a devastating blow to my pride. I, who had thought so well of myself and my abilities, of my capacity to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. Now, let's go back, if we can, to page one. If you would, go back to page one, because I want to continue pointing out to you the deadly progression of the illness, that this is an illness that is progressive. And what I'd like you to do on page one is go to the very last paragraph. And this is now the end of World War II. World War I, excuse me, World War I. 22, if you're with me on page one, 22 and a veteran of foreign wars, I went home at last. I fancied myself a leader, for had not the men of my battery given me a special token of appreciation? My talent for leadership, I imagine, would place me at the head of vast enterprises, which I would manage with the utmost assurance. So here's Bill coming out of World War One. He is married. He is confident. He believes in himself. He knows that he's a smart guy. He knows that he's a hard worker. Now when we go to the top of page 8, he doesn't have the capacity to surmount obstacles anymore. He's cornered at last. Now I was to plunge into the dark. 
joining the endless procession of sots who had gone on before. I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. What had changed in Bill? Was it just his attitude where he goes from confident to, to doubting himself? No. What had changed is he cannot believe in himself because he knows in his mind that he cannot live with liquor and he cannot live without liquor. And that is exactly where my disease will take me. It says in the doctor's opinion that we lose confidence in ourselves. Who wouldn't lose confidence in ourselves when everything we've ever told ourselves was a lie? That we could accomplish certain things, yes. And if I got to know some of you, if I got to know you, and I know some of you are a judge, or some of you are lawyers, and some of you are people who run businesses where you straighten out people's closets, or you run a business where you are whatever it is you are, I don't know. Or you work for a, a, a nursing community of, of, of elderly patients, and you provide an extremely vital service service to the community around you. But I know one thing you can't do. You can't just eat one whatever, fill in the blank. You can't just eat one bagel. You can't just eat one Dorito, one peanut butter cup. You can't do it because of the physical allergy. And you can't stay out of it because of the mental twist. You are as a group and as individuals as amazing as Bill. But when we look at the progression of Bill's disease, when we look at the progression of how Bill is thinking about himself, we see the devastating, fatal blow that the disease gives you. And what is the most fatal blow that this disease can give you before death? Hopelessness hopelessness it can give you no belief in God and no belief in yourself and when you do not believe in God and you do not believe in yourself you are almost good as dead in the eyes of the disease because it has cut you down you can't rely on God you can't rely on yourself you're no longer optimistic you can't hold a positive thought in your head and now the disease has you. And that comes about by disappointing yourself every day of your life, telling yourself, I'm not going to eat this, I'm not going to eat that, and then there you are doing it. So you lose credibility with yourself. What is one of the biggest shifts in my attitude since I got into recovery? Yes, I've lost 500 pounds. That's very nice. I almost wish I didn't. I almost wish I didn't have that kind of number because I don't want that to distract you. I, don't, I, I, I think I'd rather, rather you didn't focus in on my weight loss, okay? Don't, please don't focus in on my weight loss, okay? Focus in on this. I went from somebody who hated my guts to somebody who likes me now. I used to believe that if a woman got to know me, she'd run away from me and never want to be with me. Now I believe that if she really got to know me, I'm a pretty good guy. 
I used to hate me. Now I like me. I'm able to speak my mind. I'm able to say no when I mean no and yes when I mean yes. And I'm able to function in the world without being who you want me to be. I had to jump ahead of you so that I could be who you wanted me to be so you would like me. I want you to like me. I I think it's great if you do. If you don't, that's okay. That's okay. But Bill Wilson illustrates beautifully in his story, and see, this is missed by a lot of sponsors. A lot of them don't know it themselves, and a lot of them don't know to point it out to you. But what we're seeing in this In this few paragraphs here, we are seeing the most graphic illustration of the progressive nature of the disease, that it is not just about weight, it is not just about food, it is about the spirit that you have that is being killed off. It is about how you think about yourself and the world around you. And there's three results of working the steps besides having had a spiritual awakening as a result of them. We tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Besides that, what you have is you get right with yourself. You get right with God. Actually, you get right with God first. I'm sorry. Get right with God, get right with yourself, and then right with your fellow human being. And as you start to evolve in your recovery, as you start to develop your recovery, what happens is your whole perception changes from one of negativity to one of positivity. And not only do you start to see in others that there is good in the worst of us and bad in the best of us, that we're all human beings and we're all children of God, you start to see that about yourself. And how it happens for most people is we start to see the humanness of our fellow human being and start to, excuse me, I'm sorry, we start to accept them. One second, let me just grab a, I'm sorry, I needed a sip of water. My throat was just dry. I'm sorry. Pardon me. We start to see it in others, and then little by little by little by little, we start to see that we too are human beings, that we're not bad people trying to get good, that we are sick people trying to get well. This is huge, and that's why I spend time talking about it. Because you see, for a long time when we get into program, the scale is our report card. If the scale's going up or down, depending upon where you are, and some of us are compulsive overeaters like me, that if we are in the disease, we're going to you know, be obese. And some of us are not. There's people listening on the line right now. You would look at these people. I'm thinking about several in, in, you know, in specific people that I know very well. If you looked at them, you'd think that they were movie stars. They're so physically beautiful, they're so physically attractive that it's, it's beyond any description. And you would never look at them and say, oh my God, these are people that are sick with food. You wouldn't know it in a million years. But they are garbage, dumpster diving, back alley, compulsive overeaters. 
All you'd see are feet and ankles in the dumpster as they die for crusts of food. That's the disease, the disease that, it, that how it manifests in them. Some of us are bulimic. We get a high or we get that effect from purging through vomiting, exercise, or laxatives. And when we do that, we eat sometimes massive quantities of food, and then we purge it one way or the other. Laxatives for some, vomiting for some, or exercise for some, or a combination of all three. Some of us puke, and some of us also over-exercise, and some of us use laxatives as a combination of all three things. Some of us are anorexic, and we get a high from restricting the amount of food we eat, and some of us are, in reality, severely underweight, and we become anorexic. And if you combine that with the, the body dysmorphic disorder, we'd often, as anorexics, I'm not anorexic, but we don't see it. And we think we're okay, and we think if we, you know, we're scared to eat because we're going to get fat. These are manifestations of exactly the same disease. Now, I don't know how many of you know this, and I don't want to get too sidetracked, but in the early 1980s, there was a movement afoot to get the bulimics and the anorexics out of OA, that OA was a place for compulsive overeaters, not a place for people who compulsively undereat or who purge. And that's why in San Diego, California, at around that time, about 1981, there was a 12-step program for bulimics and anorexics. And then OA came to its senses, thank God, and said, wait a minute, we acted too hastily, please don't leave. Thank God. Thank God. But on page 8, we can see the progression of the disease, and we see the progression in a parallel way from the actual getting drunk itself. This is the result of getting drunk, yes, but we're not talking about him consuming liquor here. We're talking about Bill and the way he thinks about the world and the way he thinks about himself. Remember again, and I, I know I repeat myself, but I feel I must, because our brains are brains that are designed to forget it. Remember, we have a mental blank spot, which is the built-in forgetter. The disease is permanent. The disease is progressive. And the disease is fatal. Once you lose hope, once you lose faith, once you lose that idea that tomorrow might somehow be better, you're on your you're 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 on your back in this thing. You're in the spider web. You're the fly in the spider web, and only God is going to be great enough to get you out. And as I wanted to kill myself, as I wanted to die, as I reached for God as a last resort when all other measures were not succeeding, he whispered on the embers of my heart that were black from, from wanting death, and they burst into flame, and they light me today. If you're listening and you're in recovery, great, but if you're not, and you're thinking that you hate yourself, and you're thinking that you hate God, reach out for some of us. We are here with you. We are trudging the road of happy destiny right here with you. 
let's cover some more ground. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Stop right there. You're alone. You see, the ego has three jobs. Make me right. Make me feel good right now. And make me different. And I looked at the world and I said to myself, you don't understand my pain. I'm different. I'm fatter than you. And I didn't have what you had. And you had a trust fund. And you had this. And you had that. And you have girlfriends. And I don't. And you have this. And I don't. That is all manifestations of the disease of compulsive overeating that somehow I am different so what the hell is the use anyway I might as well get good and drunk this time and I did I'm using Bill's words not Harlan's words when it says on page six I was in no time I was beating on the bar asking myself how it happened as the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time, but I might as well get good and drunk then, and I did. This is important stuff. This is a description of the progression of the disease of alcoholism. Can I relate? Yes. I was full of loneliness I was full of despair. I, I was full of self-pity. Let's continue. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. What is quicksand? It's not liquid enough to swim in. It's not solid enough to stand in. And if it's not liquid enough to swim in, and it's not solid enough to stand in, I am eventually going to drown in the quicksand. Quicksand is fatal. You can't swim in it. It isn't liquid enough. You can't stand in it because it won't support your weight. And it is fatal. You fall in there, you're in trouble. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. In other words, he had no hope. Hope was what he needed. And I, I had met my match I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. That is one of the best descriptions of step one ever written. That he is powerless over food and his life is unmanageable. He loves Lois and Lois loves him. But he can't be married. He can't, he can't show up for a relationship. He cannot show up for a relationship. Why can't he show up for a relationship? Because he's constantly thinking about where he's going to get his next drink. He isn't thinking about the other person. And if you're going to be married, or you're going to be in a friend relationship, or a work relationship, or any type of relationship, you're going to have to listen when the other person is talking, and you're going to have to respond to them, and when you're hostile toward them, they're going to pick up on it. You know, I, I had German shepherds for years. Years and years we had German shepherds. We had all kinds of dogs. We had Honey Bear and Heidi and we had uh, Hallis and Emma, and we had 
we had all kinds of them. Dogs, dogs, when you don't want them around, they pick up on it in two seconds flat. They are very intuitive. So are people. And when all you're thinking about or all I'm thinking about is how am I going to get my next McDonald's French fry? How am I going to get my next uh, Chips Ahoy? How am I going to get my next whatever? Fill in the blank. I'm not present for you. I'm not there for you. And eventually you'll say to yourself, what am I hanging around with this goofball for? I'm going to go hang out with somebody else that is at least that's at least available for a relationship. It doesn't have to be romantic. It could be anything. So we see not only the progression of the illness, but as we practice these principles in all of our affairs, the disease is practicing its death. The disease is practicing its, de- its, its, de- its, its absolutely devastating death in all areas of our life. You see, if all the food did was make me fat, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. So I'd be fat. If I could be happy and fat, maybe I'd still be, well, I'd be dead. But if I could, just hypothetically, just bear with me for just a second here, okay? If I could be happy and productive and fat, I don't know that I would have come into OA. I wouldn't have suffered the kind of loneliness I suffered. I wouldn't have suffered the kind of deprivation and the emotional starvation and the physical pain that I suffered. So you see in this little paragraph more of how the poison, the poison of this disease is weaving its way through Bill's soul Can I relate to Bill Wilson? You bet that I can. You betcha. Trembling. This is May of 34. Trembling. I stepped from the hospital a broken man. He's being released. He's going home. There's nothing more that they can do for him. Nothing. Fear sobered me for a bit. In other words, he was scared. And I've been scared before. I've been scared before for about five minutes. About five minutes. Then came the insidious insanity of the first drink, and on Armistice Day, that's November 11th, 1934, I was off again. I'll give you the backstory here. Bill is released from the hospital in May of 34. Bill talks about in his story that he was a golfer. Golf permitted drinking every day and almost every and, and every night. Remember the story where he was coming up behind Walter Hagen. It is now November 11th, 1934. And Bill says to Lois, and Lois was like his mommy at this point, he had, she had him on an allowance because he didn't make any money. He wasn't working. And he says to Lois, it's a really nice day. It's November. The golf courses here are not going to be crowded. Would it be okay if I went to play? So she says, sure, go ahead. And she gives him money, and he takes the bus And he's got his golf clubs on the bus, and he's headed for a public course in New York, in Brooklyn. On the bus comes a fella, 
Now, you wouldn't see this today. He had a big rifle with him, a big shotgun with him. He's going to go do some skeet shooting, some, some, some shooting. And uh, Bill and him are on, at the back of the bus, and they're having a conversation. And all of a sudden, the bus breaks down. And the bus breaks down in front of a bar. And Bill is telling this man at the bar and on the bus about alcoholism ruining his life. Ruined his life. Just He couldn't get past the liquor. This is November 11th. It's Armistice Day. What we would say today is Veterans Day. The reason it was called Armistice Day is that was when the armistice for World War I was signed. So in those days, everybody was in the Army except the four Fs and, and certain other people. But men were in the Army. There was the draft, and when you became 18, you went down to the draft board, and you signed up, and, and you went in the Army. It was, that was just what was done. That was, what, that was very normal. Unless you were sick, you're 4F, or unless there's some extenuating circumstance why you don't have to be in the Army. Okay. So they're sitting at this bar, and Bill is telling this guy stories about how he was in the hospital for drinking. And the bartender comes over, and he says, were you guys in the service? And he, Bill says, yes. And the other guy says, yes. So he puts down two beers, one for each of them. Free beer. It's Armistice Day, one on the house. Bill gets so drunk, and the guy says to him, are you crazy? After everything that you're telling me, how in the world can you drink liquor? How in the world can you put liquor in your mouth? And by that time, Bill's mental twist had convinced him it was okay to have one beer. After all, he was just going to have one, right? How many times did I say to myself, I'm just going to have one. I'm just going to have some. I'm just going to have whatever. And then I would end up eating the, sto- eating the grocery store, okay? And Bill is in this bar with this guy getting soused. Now he's got to go back to Lois, and he's got to tell Lois what happened because the money that she gave him to golf was swallowed up by the bar, and it was lucky he had enough to get home. It was lucky he had enough to get home. So here, once again, I'm not even going to focus here on what Lois is thinking. Let's consider what Bill is thinking here. Coming back, tail between his legs, Lois couldn't have been nicer. She gives him money for golf, and what does he do? And she don't want to hear the story about the bus broke down and we were in front of a bar. She don't want to hear that. She knows that he has been hospitalized twice and that Dr. Silkworth has told him in no uncertain terms, you must not drink liquor again. And how many doctors told me not to eat candy? How many doctors told me not to eat whatever, fill, fill in the blank, cookies or fried food or dessert, whatever that is? How many times was it frustrating for my mom and dad 
to see that all the money that they spent on doctors and all the money and all the worrying that they did about my weight did no good. It did no good. And here's Bill Wilson coming home. Can I relate to Bill? You bet that I can. You know that I can. I was off again. Everyone became resigned to the certainty, not the suspicion, not the possibility, not the chance, not the probability, the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. And Bill is without hope. It doesn't matter how many times he's been hospitalized. It doesn't matter how strongly the warnings of his people not to drink are. It doesn't matter that Dr. Silkworth is a wonderful man and he's telling Bill in no uncertain terms, Bill, you've got to not you've got to not take the first drink. And Bill is agreeing not to do it. And Bill knows that when Dr. Silkworth finds out if he finds out that Bill was drunk again, he's going to know that Bill took that first drink and that he's lied to another person. And what Bill eventually does is he gets very hopeless, just like me and maybe just like you. Can I relate to Bill Wilson? You bet that I can. How dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. Debauch is a binge or a, or a relapse. I was soon to be catapulted. I love that imagery. Catapulted, thrown way up above the trees, way big distance. Catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. These are some of the most beautiful promises. Now, what we're going to be learning and what we're going to be discussing, not next week because we're going to Canada, and I hope you're going to come with us to Canada. We're going to Edmonton. It's very beautiful up there. It's right by Banff National Park. And it's just gorgeous up there, particularly this time of year. It's, it's going to be May, springtime in Canada. Oh, it's going to be glorious. But let's take a look at what's going on with Bill Wilson. See, he was going to be catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. What is the fourth dimension? Well, let's look at the first three dimensions. There's width, height, and depth. Width, height, and depth. What is the fourth dimension? The fourth dimension is the dimension of the spiritual. The spiritual. So here's Bill, down on his luck, down on his life. He cannot put together any length of time without drinking. He's an embarrassment to his wife. He's an embarrassment to himself. He is an embarrassment. He doesn't want to live. He's certain that he's going to be locked up or he's going to be dead. He had so much hope and so many dreams and so many possibilities. 
and he was smart, and he knew he was smart, and he was well-intentioned, and he knew he was well-intentioned, and he had a wife who loved him. He, they loved each other very much, and I know Bill was a ladies' man, and I know that later on there was, you know, <clears throat> some sort of irregularities in their marriage, to say the least. I get that. I totally understand that. I'm, I'm not stupid. But you got to know that these two people loved one another. And there was nothing he wanted more than to give her the husband that he felt that she deserved in him, a husband that she could be proud of, a husband that was sober and forthright. And it is only going to be through God. It is only going to be through his spiritual experience that she is going to get that husband that she's always wanted. So let's take a look at what happened here that he's going to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. Near the end of that bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen. With a certain satisfaction, I reflected there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and the next day. So he feels satisfied. He doesn't know what's about to happen to him. None of us do. He doesn't have a clue about what we're going to be talking about, not next week, but the week after. We're going to find the history of step two. What we're going to be finding, not next week, but the week after, we're going to find how step two is going to come into Bill's life and our life. And we're going to find that through a very unlikely source of information, a solution to Bill's problem is going to come about. And it's going to come about from a group of people that do not know anything about what alcoholism is or what alcoholism is not. But they're going to give Bill information and that information is going to change the history of the world forever. And he says here, I dared hide a full bottle of gin near the head of our bed. I would need it before daylight. And he feels satisfied because he's got enough liquor for the near future. He knows that this liquor will keep him drunk and when he's drunk, he doesn't have to feel anything. And when I'm eating, I don't have to feel a thing. I can live with my food, and no one can touch me because I can feel nothing. But that was a lie because I felt hopeless. I felt ashamed. I felt embarrassed. I felt the pain of failure. I felt like I had let myself down and I felt like I had let down my mother and let down my father and let down the generations of my family that I never knew that came before me. <clears throat> and I had let down God. You're not going to tell me that I'm of maximum usefulness to anyone when I'm in the food. It just is not going to be something I'm going to believe. It cannot happen. We're going to study in two weeks what is about to happen. What's going to happen 
is going to change the world forever. The very famous psychologist, very, very famous psychologist, uh, Scott, uh, Scott Peck, he says that ultimately the 20th century will be known for three things. Number one, it will be known for man's foray into flight. Kitty Hawk, 1903, the Wright brothers start flying their plane, and it led to the age of flight. Number two, the atomic slash computer age. And number three, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, we're going to end a little early today because I do not want to get into the whole backstory of what's about to happen. I can't do it in 10 minutes anyway. It's impossible. But I want to get into that when we're fresh on May the, let me see here, May the, uh, I believe it's going to be the 9th. And I'm going to give you the story of how God is going to enter into the heart and soul of Bill Wilson, and he's going to change the history of the world forever through unlikely sources, unlikely people. And we're going to see a confluence. What is a confluence? A confluence is when two rivers come together. We're going to see step one, the problem, and step two, the solution. And they're going to come together in Bill Wilson. Now, we do not know if Bill Wilson is the first person in, in, in the world to get this information. We do not know that. But what we do know is we do know that Bill Wilson is going to be the very first person in the history of planet Earth to take this information and move it forward. He's going to take it and move it forward. Okay, what we're going to do this morning is, once again, I'm going to tell you that next week, mark your calendars, we will not be meeting like we're meeting today. At 9 a.m., I believe that is Eastern Time or Central Time. I know the times. I'm going to give you Pacific Times because the Pacific Time is what I do know. 8 a.m. Pacific Time. That's for you guys in the Midwest, that's 10 a.m. For you guys out east, that's 11 a.m. For you guys on the West Coast, that's 8 a.m. just like me. And for Maria and all the people that are in either Ireland or England or the people on British Standard Time, that's going to be 8 and 8 is 16. 16 is 16 minus, 10. I think that's 4 o'clock p.m. 8 a.m.? 3 is 11, 11 and 5 is, yeah, I think it's 4 o'clock. Anyway, you guys will have to figure it out yourself. 8 a.m. Pacific time, we are going to go to Edmonton, Canada. And when we're in Edmonton, Canada, we're going to spring into the Steps Marathon. And Larry Kay and Jen A. and I are going to be doing a retreat. And you are more than invited. You are welcome to please join us. This is going to be Zoom, not the same phone number you're dialing into today, not the same codes of today. You're going to dial in on Zoom on your computers or your iPhones so you can see or be seen or not. If you don't want to be seen, you can shut off the video. And this is how we're going to do it. 
Jen A and Nancy J are people that are above me in pay grade. They know how to do all this stuff, and they're going to post some of this stuff on Vision Trudgers. They make more than I do, and so they understand these things better than me. But Jen A and Nancy J are masters of this Facebook and how to put things on there, and I am not. I am not. So they're going to put it on there, and it's going to be a bunch of tulips. I'm looking at it right now. It's a bunch of tulips, and that'll tell you that you're in the right place. A bunch of tulips is in the picture, and they'll give you the codes, and they'll give you everything. Nancy J and Jen A are the ones that know how to do that. I don't. I assume Pam knows how to do that, too, and Maria knows how to do it because these guys are pretty good at that stuff. But what I'd like to do for now, since we have till 11.30, it's 11.09, is I hope this was helpful. You can unmute yourself by pushing star six. And you know, guys, that if you've been with me before, and I know we have some new people on the line, I don't want food questions. Please, God, no food questions. But if you have questions about what we've talked about today or general questions, I'm open uh, just push star six and unmute yourself, and I'll do the best I can to answer. Hi, Harlan. Andy, hi. Hi, Andy. Hi. Um, it, are you just being kind of cute with the name Vision Trudgers? Is it actually on a Vision for You? There is a Facebook page called A Vision for You Trudgers. There is a Facebook page which is independent from A Vision for You, but it's called A Vision for You Trudgers. Now, Nancy, if you're on the line, or Jen, if you're on the line, have I got the name of that Facebook page correct? Jen A or Nancy or Maria or somebody that knows about such things? Let me see if I can bring uh, Harlan, it up. Yeah, Harlan. Nancy. Oh, thank Hi. God. Okay. Hi. Can you help Andy Hi. here? Yes. What I this is this is the simplest for me. If this, I have made a photograph of the flyer with the tulips on it. Okay. And and I want to give my phone number, okay. and then people can text me. You let me stop say, the recording I'm... before you do. Let me okay. let me stop. Okay. Let me stop the recording because otherwise you're going to get calls that you don't want to stop okay. recording. <laughs> Harlan. Harlan, we've lost you. Harlan. 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 Can you just give your number anyway, even if he doesn't come on? Right back here. Hold on. There you go. 